are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is the vice president of programs at BioLogos and host of the podcast, The Language of God. He is a passionate speaker, author, and organizer in the field of science and religion. He is also the author of Four Views of Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design, Science and Christianity, An Introduction to the Issues, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution, and The Blackwell Companion to Science and Christianity. We are so excited to welcome Jim Stump to the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks, Zach. Good to be here. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, and mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking this time out of your day. I know that there is so much going on right now with BioLogos. We were just talking before the podcast started about uh, the conference that you have just in a couple of days, which unfortunately, by the time that this uh, <laughs> podcast airs, will be over. So There sorry, will be virtual recordings available to see if you're interested oh, in that good. sort of thing. Yeah. So. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I, that was going to be my first question. So for the folks who did not register because they are just hearing about it after the fact they can go watch those so i think the way it works is you can register for the online portion and it's a pay what you can kind of thing and those are going to be available for three months after after the conference and then there may be free versions that that come out don't hold me to that i'm not entirely sure about that but i think that's the way it works (laughs) Excellent. Wonderful. So you you heard it here first, folks. Um, Actually, you probably heard it here last uh, at this point. (laughs) So for those of our listeners who are not all that familiar with BioLogos, could you take a minute here and explain a little bit about what it is that you you all do? Sure. The BioLogos Elevator Speech. We are a nonprofit organization founded by Francis Collins, who was the leader of the Human Genome Project and then became the director of the NIH, is currently the president's science advisor. He wrote a book in 2006 called The Language of God, after which our podcast was named. And in it, he shared about how uh, he is this world-class scientist. He didn't call himself a world-class scientist. He's too humble for that. But he is a world-class scientist and how he came to understand these scientific things about the world. But then also how, as an adult, he came to faith in, in Christ and tried to show how those two things fit together in his own life. And after the publication of that book, he got lots and lots of questions, emails, even letters at the time uh, from people asking follow-up questions. And he quickly got overwhelmed with all of that and put together a group of people to uh, write out answers to frequently asked questions. And they put it on a podcast, or sorry, this is a podcast. They put it on a website (laughs) and called it BioLogos. And that's how BioLogos got started. It was answers to frequently asked questions about primarily science and evolution at the time. Uh, Just after that podcast, after that website went live was when he was tapped by President Obama to become the director of the NIH and had to separate himself uh, from BioLogos. So it became a little more organized and incorporated and uh, uh, started having things like conferences and doing a blog and writing some other books and those kinds of things. Um, And so here we are 12 years later or so 
that uh, we're now a staff of 14, uh, 14 people. Mm-hmm. We have a speakers bureau. We have this podcast you mentioned. The website is still kind of the, the main hub of what we do. We had over 2 million unique visitors to the website last year. Lots of them, interesting, interestingly enough, still landing on these pages of frequently asked questions that Biologus got mm-hmm. started with. So somebody does a, a Google search on something related to human beings and Adam and Eve and evolution, or these days we also talk about uh, climate change and vaccines and and those kinds of topics as well. And I think it's fair to say we've become a pretty trusted uh, organization within the Christian community for people who are trying to take their faith seriously, but also want to take the findings of contemporary science seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been with them since 2013 or so. I right? started in 2013 half time. I was a philosophy professor and split my time between uh, Biologos and the college I was teaching at for a couple of years and then went full time starting in 2015. Hmm. What, what about your trajectory of your life led you to that point? to this place. So I did a PhD in philosophy and was always interested in science. My undergrad degree was in science education. Ian, I would have had you as a professor somewhere along the, along the route. Um, and my father was was trained originally as like a middle school science teacher. He eventually became a, became an administrator. But I and we grew up in a Christian family, a very conservative Midwest Christian uh, community. And so I was always interested in these two things, and was never really forced into the kinds of positions you hear lots of people from. Uh, conservative Christian families where creation science or young earth creationism or something. We, I was never forced into those kinds of positions. It was always encouraged to investigate and ask questions and look at the natural world as a good place and was always interested how that fit with uh, the Christian commitments that I had. And so uh, I did this undergrad degree in math and science education, thought I might become a um, a uh, high school or middle school math and science teacher. And then immediately after college, my wife and I went to Africa, actually, to teach in a mission school for a while. And there I started reading reading uh, books more seriously than I did as a math major in, in uh, college. <laughs> and so it was primarily the 19th century fiction shelf in the library in this little school way out in the middle of, 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 of the jungle, actually. And somewhere in that conjunction between the math and science analytical training I had and then reading 19th century fiction like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Melville and some of these great ideas that came out, somewhere in the conjunction of those two things, out popped philosophy. And I'm not the first person I've heard to say that, (laughs) that they were attracted to philosophy through literature, um, but came back from there and went to grad school in philosophy wanted to do something related to science and religion in a philosophy PhD, but was said, no, you can't really do that in this department, but you could do science and, and metaphysics, science and philosophy more generally. So I did a, I did a dissertation uh, that was kind of historical in nature, the scientific revolution, how the advancing scientific theories interacted with, with the advancing philosophical th- theories of the time and how these two disciplines interacted with each other all with an eye toward how does this affect science and religion? 
And so then started teaching at a small Christian liberal arts school where you teach about everything and don't have too much time to, to research yourself. But I got a fellowship one year through the Templeton Foundation to go to Oxford for to do some projects in science and religion. And that was where I was introduced more specifically to the academic discipline of science and religion and really liked it and started doing some things there. In 2013, um, Biologos had a new president who was from Grand Rapids, Michigan. The Biologos offices were previously in San Diego. The, the, the past president was a professor at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego. But when Deb Harzma became president, she said, I need to move the headquarters to where I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And only two of the staff wanted to move from San Diego to Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And so she uh, put out a call looking for some new staff. And in particular, she wanted somebody in philosophy and theology that could help uh, to curate some of the resources for the website and so on. So I responded to that saying, I am really interested in this and the work Biologos is doing, and I think I could help in uh, in what you need, but I'm not ready to quit my full-time, full professor tenured position to do that. Can we work out some other deal? And to my surprise, she said, yeah, let's do this. So for two years, Biologos bought out part of my faculty contract so that I could do each of them half-time. Um, and that was with the full full permission of the administration from this little college where I was teaching. And, but then as word started getting out to some of the broader constituents in that community, it made them nervous that there was a faculty member mm -hmm. so closely aligned with Biologos that accepts evolution, you know. So uh, sort of a long, we called it a dialogue started, but it was more of a one-way monologue, I'm afraid, and ended with uh, some of the documents that faculty have to sign every year being changed. And it kind of forced me to say, I probably don't belong here anymore. And Biologos wanted to hire me full-time. So in 2015, I started working for them full-time. That was a very long answer to your question of how I got here, but that's the, no. the nitty-gritty details. I feel details. like there's a lot of our... I feel like a lot of our listeners can resonate with that. Yeah. There's a lot of folks, especially those of us who come from a more conservative background, a more evangelical background, who, who we dip our toes into this world. We realize we're not alone in, in the people who really want to engage with science with integrity and maintain our spirituality. And we discover this new and beautiful and exciting mm. world that God has made. And there's a new life in us. And then we are met with a brick wall of opposition from the people who used to accept us where our, our identity used to be. And they've now changed. I mean, the fact that they changed their covenant that right. you could no longer sign mm -hmm. it. Um, a very similar thing happened to me uh, in a church once. But um, it's one of the things that I really appreciate about Biologos, um, of, of all of the sort of organizations that, that are tackling these issues. You all seem to have the best inroads into the evangelical world where where there is you know historically anyway a lot of science denialism what is it about about your organization that that gives you this ability to speak uh to speak science speak truth into a world so full of denialism that's uh kind of you to say that and I wonder if one day somebody in a sociology department might write a <laughs> write a big dissertation, do a big study related 
two science and religion organizations in the U.S. because it's it's a fascinating territory. Um, BioLogos in its earlier days, so soon after uh, Francis Collins had to disassociate himself with the organization, there was a one group of people that came in and. Um, you can go, you can still find some of the, the early uh, articles that were written more. So you find when I travel people who reacted in a certain way that, um, wasn't very positive. I think I, there, there's a natural, uh, I, I think there's a natural kind of progression for people that start to entertain these kinds of ideas that, leads them away. Part of what happens when, you, when you're trying to figure out how to reconcile evolution with Christian faith, and particularly with the Bible, is your interpretation of Scripture, you start to realize, has to be a little more nuanced and, and not quite so, look, I just read this in the Bible, and therefore, that's it. And we, we come to think that that wasn't a good way of interpreting Scripture anyway. But what it does is it opens the doors for you to reconsider lots of other things, right? That, that you see, this is harder. This is messier than, than perhaps the community I came from had led me to believe. And I think there were some um, instances in those early days of Biologos where that was almost pushed down people's throats a little too harshly. And they felt like Biologos was saying, oh, you poor benighted evangelicals, let me help straighten you out and let me, uh, <laughs> you know, show you the truth and you'll come to be just like we are then. That's that's maybe not a, a charitable way of interpreting that, but that's the kind of message I hear from people who were only acquainted with Biologos in some of those early days. And then there was a very intentional decision for a kind of kinder, gentler approach and the hiring of people that identified themselves as evangelicals and were still part of this world. And so I think we took on more of an aura of trying to reform from within rather than taking pot shots from the outside. That's a little too simplistic and is perhaps a caricature of what was actually happening. Um, but I think that's, uh, that points to some of it, that we have very intentionally tried to keep one foot in the evangelical world, even though, you know, the way the culture wars have bundled issues together, science is on one side and religion is on the other side way too often. And we find ourselves in that no man's land out in the middle. But instead of just going with the flow of saying, well, then we're just going to become this progressive organization that sneers at evangelicals. You know, we've said, no, we are, we're still part of this. And many of these impulses we share. And so it's much more an issue of how do we articulate within, you know, the, the framework that makes sense to that community. So I don't know. It's a it's a really good question, and we are not a perfect organization, and we misstep and stumble <laughs> all the time. But it's a it's a one of our one of our values. I mean, our in our founding documents, our values say rigorous science, Christ centered faith, and gracious dialogue. So mm. it's not. I, I think too many people use the speak the truth in love verse as a weapon that gives themselves permission to club people over the heads with the truth as they know it. It now and we're much more concerned about um you know winning people through 
graciousness than just clubbing them with the truth. So I'm curious, I'd like, um, that idea you talk about, um, the, having the conversation, right. Making it so that you can actually have a conversation. Um, which I really like that. How do you approach those who, I mean, I'm certain there are individuals or groups maybe who've started off maybe more antagonistic or they've started off uh, their conversation with you in an attacking type manner. How do you handle that? Or, or do you initially, do you know, do you know what I mean? What I'm trying to get out here? Like it, it, people who maybe approach more with that, my way or the highway, I am correct. You are wrong type approach. What have you done in the past? Yeah. So thankfully those people are the outliers actually. They're Mm. the ones that get the most press. They're the loudest voices out there, but it's not the norm. We uh, commissioned a a sociological survey on origins a few years back, and it was really fascinating to see. Yes, you can see if you only ask the question, like, how old do you think the earth is? Or do you think human beings evolved? Evangelicals, still the majority of them say are, you know, young earth creationists or old earth creationists, at least saying that there's no such thing as evolution. But when you dig a little deeper and ask, and how important is this to you? It's a really small percentage. It's like less than 10% who pound their fist on the lectern and say, I'm a young earth creationist, darn it, and it has to be that way, or you're all going to hell, or, you know, that you hear those voices on the internet particularly, but that's not the majority of people. And so there's there's a middle ground of people who are, you know, either don't really care that much about the issues, or they say, this is interesting, but it's not hugely important to me, and I'm not gonna get into fights over it. So that's the first response to your question, Ian, is that it's not as many people doing that as you might be led to believe by if you only follow these issues on Twitter. Right. Um, But then there are those people. And one of the things Biologues has done is that we don't really do debates. I mean, that became that became part of the DNA, I'm afraid, of evangelicalism and apologetics to say we're going to get up and, you know, have a debate and trot out all our fancy reasons and show people why, you know, we're we're just as smart as you are, or actually smarter because we believe the truth. We've said we're not doing that. We're happy to have conversations with people, but we vastly prefer those conversations to come out of relationship that has happened. Mm -hmm. So just as an example of that, um, Reasons to Believe is another uh, science and faith organization out in California, uh, founded by Hugh Ross, who is a an astrophysicist, um, became a Christian uh, later in his life and started this as an apologetics ministry. Um, They're old earth creationists, so they accept the science of physics and geology that points toward the uh, ancient age of the earth and the universe, but they don't accept evolution. And we've had really good, interesting, productive talks with them but it's only because we've spent a lot of time with them. And when I say spend a lot of time with them, it's not a lot of time on stages talking in front of other people or even doing this kind of thing on a podcast where you're having a conversation, but secretly you're just trying to talk to your own audience, you know, 
preach to the right. choir in some mm-hmm. sense. We spent a lot of time with them behind closed doors, out of the public eye, just getting to know each other. So four or five representatives from our organization would get together with four or five representatives from their organization, and we'd talk about the common ground we have. We'd talk about our differences. We'd also pray with each other, and we'd hear each other's spiritual journey and stories, and we'd eat a meal together. And so I often have said in response, uh, in reaction to that and to these kinds of questions, that it's a lot harder to be snippy over the internet at people with whom you've prayed. <laughs> people <Yeah. laughs> that you've people that you've hung out with, people that you know yeah. their testimony, their stories. In when when you have that kind of a relationship, it's it's way harder to to be uncharitable toward them. Where when it's people that you don't know anything about, you read a quote or two and you make all these assumptions about who they are and what they must be like and you just go from there. So developing relationship has always been really important in the biologos approach to these things. Yeah, I I like that. I um you're talking about debates. You know, I've I've never found uh debates on these types of issues uh worthwhile. And when I, I was faculty at LSU for three years from 2008, 2011, and um, Louisiana, you know, at times is uh, historically has had trouble with teaching of evolution in schools and, um, and they still do. And I was testifying a lot down there against efforts to undermine the teaching of evolution and also to undermine curriculum materials. And right before we moved back to North Carolina, um, I don't remember the name of the person, but someone reached out to me from a small group in Canada wanting to set up a debate as a way to (laughs) come after me. And I immediately turned it down, but I reached out to some of my mentors about it and they just said, it's, it's not worth it. So you're, you're going the right way, but it was, it was interesting to finally get on someone's radar that way. But again, I just was saying it's not worth my time. So there seems to be a fine line between a debate and a conversation. Right. And you are a podcast host. Um, Do you find yourself in situations where things start turning into a debate over a conversation? Um, Not very often. Not very often. And I'm sure part of that comes through the selection of the people we have on the podcast to talk (laughs) with. Most of them are people who agree with us to start with. We we do consciously try to look over the course of a season or a, over a calendar year to make sure we're talking with people that are outside the tent and outside the tent in different directions, whether that's they don't agree with us on science or they don't agree with us about Christianity. And... Um, but those have those have never, like, gotten ugly or nasty or anything, so... Hmm. Okay. And so for those of you who are listening who are not familiar, um, Jim is the host of the the Language of God podcast, which is uh, saying before, one of the only regularly updating podcasts that tackles science and religion on a regular basis with any kind of intellectual integrity is, <laughs> is how I, I think I would put it. Um, and I, I do regular Google searches because, uh, well, you know, one of the reasons we started this podcast was because there wasn't a whole lot out there. And, you know, we were in conversation, the five of us, and like we realized there was not a whole lot of, of uh, content mm-hmm. out there. And there wasn't a whole lot of 
organization of people. Everyone kind of felt like they were on their own. And so we wanted to create a community of people who, um, who at least were asking similar questions, if not on the same page. Um, and you do that on a regular basis. Um, so first of all, thank you mm-hmm. for doing that. <laughs> um, and I wonder if you might take a little, uh, a little bit of time here and tell us a little bit about what is sort of the driving ethos behind your podcast and what you're trying to do with it. Yeah. Um, one of the most frequently requested resources we had at Biologos in the, the middle teen years of the 21st century was to have a podcast. And we always replied with, yeah, that would be great, but we just don't think we have the resources to do it, both the human resources as well as money. We had no, and that, that answer was fairly, uh, and uneducated, but we didn't, we did, we just didn't know about podcasting. And I had a, a chance depending on your theology, you might say providential conversation with a former student of mine at a party one night, asked him what he was doing. And he said, "Ah, I started this new business and I'm a consultant for podcasters. And I'm like, seriously, there is such that you can do that. (laughs) And he said, yeah, (laughs) said lots of people. I said, what does it take to do a podcast? And we had this conversation for about an hour. And at the end of that hour, I had the whole plan in mind to go back to the leadership at Biologues and say, we need to do this. We can do this. It's not as complicated as I thought. It doesn't take as much money as I thought. And um Using somebody like this, we can figure out how to do it. Well, Biologos um, were, were funded entirely through grants and donations. We don't sell anything, so our only revenue comes from those. And so anytime we have a new project, we end up pitching it as a grant proposal, or we find a donor who's interested in it in that way. We really thought we needed to hire one more person than we, than we had to, to be able to devote time to doing it. And so we ended up getting... Uh, we ended up getting a uh, a grant to start it to start it off and to do that you have to write up this big document saying this is what we want to do and essentially it was taking the academic conversations of science and religion that you guys know that that go on at all sorts of levels of uh, but it doesn't often trickle down into Uh, the people in the pew. So this was a grant that (sighs) was intentionally pitched to say, we want to bring the kind of conversations that the scholars in our network are having regularly and to try to translate that for a general podcasting audience, for people that say, yeah, I'm kind of interested in where humans came from. I'm interested in what the Bible has to say about this. And I'm interested in the latest scientific discoveries, but to take that and package it in a way that would, that would be interesting for, for, for those kinds of people. So it's uh, designed very much to take the, all the topics that Biologos is, is interested in and engaged in and to find the interesting people to talk to about that. My uh, only qualifications as a podcasting host before starting this were that I was, I was the announcer for the women's basketball team at the college where I was teaching for a number of years. <laughs> and so I had practice speaking into a microphone in that regard. 
but I, I, it was something I thought I can, I'd, I'd really like to do this. I think I can do this. And there was some skepticism going into it, whether this was really the right fit for me to be the podcast host, but we started doing a few and people said, yeah, I guess he can do that. That I guess announcing three pointers translates. Okay. into <laughs> into talking about science and faith. So, so now it's, it's like half of my job. It's, and it's been one of the most wow. enjoyable things that I've done. I, I really enjoyed having these kinds of conversations with, with lots of people. So, we, just like you, have recently uh, hit the 100 episode mark and uh, have continued uh, continued it on for we'll go for at least another couple of years and we'll see what happens then. Yeah, I, I only just realized that you all launched your podcast just about just a couple of months before was we launched our podcast. Yeah, yeah it was we almost, have, almost at the same time. We must have sensed the same need out there, huh? <laughs> I think we probably did. It sounds like we sense the same need anyway. The the taking the from the 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 academy and and bringing it back mm-hmm. uh, down to the people, as it were. Um, so in in the past hundred and some odd episodes, what what are some of the uh, the, the things that you've learned that stand out to you? So. I mean, I, I think I've learned how to be a better podcast host than I was at the beginning. Um, I've learned, I mean, just through conversations with people, one of the things you see over and over again is that what people believe is really deeply connected to who they are, where they live, the community that's around them. The ideas that we have aren't just floating around in, you know, some ether, that they're deeply connected to the people that we are, to the communities that, that we're part of. And that can be troubling to people sometimes if you think that leads you down this road of relativism of some sense. But I think instead it shows the embodiedness of our faith. It shows that our faith can take on particular particular guises depending on where we are and who we're around. And that shouldn't be threatening. That should be an indication of the incarnational element of Christianity, right? And... So it's, it always uh, gives me, I think, great hope to hear uh, pe- different people's expression and articulation of their Christian faith dependent on the circumstances that it, they've found themselves in. And there are obviously commonalities through that um, and different challenges, uh, similar challenges that come out and are expressed in, in similar ways, but it, uh, it doesn't take away from the, the kind of uniqueness and the embeddedness of, of the faith in our, in our lives as we find them. So you've, if, I mean, I, I, Zach knows this, we've been friends for a long time now. I, I always bounce back and forth and you were talking earlier, Jim, when you're talking about your journey, and you refer to a fellowship that you did. I think you said it was with Oxford, maybe, or something. Uh, can you delve more into that a little bit? And what was that sure. experience like? For you? So what was it? And then what was that experience yeah. like for you? The John Templeton Foundation is the major funder of all things science and religion in, <laughs> yeah. in this country and in several other countries. And they started a program um, designed for primarily for faculty at Christian colleges, to get more engaged in the academic discipline of science and religion. And so this was, it was actually three summers in a row held at Oxford University. Wycliffe Hall is one of the colleges, one of the halls of, 
of Oxford University. So three summers in a row, I went over there for four weeks each. Two of those summers, I even got to bring my family with me. And uh, Mm -hmm. it was a really transformative time um, for me as a scholar and understanding deeper the the issues involved in science and, and religion. So we each had to pitch a project of some sort. Um, to work on throughout those times. And then there's a cohort of about 35 people who were there and we got to know each other and became friends and had these kinds of conversations uh, a lot. And so I came back and started working and writing more seriously in the academic field of of science and, and religion. And that's kind of what led me to Biologos then too. So yeah, and they've done so. Templeton has done this several times with different cohorts. I was in, I was part of the second cohort, so it was. See if I have my dates right. Two thousand three, four, and five were the okay. years that the summers that I was there. There was a three year program immediately before that too, and since then I think they've been doing just two year cohorts, um, but have had similar programs for quite a while. Yeah. That's because just for me personally, that's something I'm interested in. And obviously I work at a secular institution, but of, you know, the fellowship that brought all of us together, Sinai Synapses, um, you know, was, was something that, you know, obviously was very powerful for me personally. And it led to the five of us becoming very good friends in this podcast, but it's something that I, um, am more interested in trying to find other avenues just because, you know, as Zach mentioned of the five of us, I'm the only one that's not as engaged, I guess you could say within the religious type community as the others, just because of my work and as a science educator, which is not a, a bad thing. It's just something that I, you know, crave hmm. more. So hmm. I think that sounds when we have, so when Biologos has these conferences, like the one you mentioned, that's, that's coming up here this week, that's, that's what we hear most from the people who come and attend that they've been just craving fellowship around like-minded people. Because for too many for too many people in their in their religious communities, they find it challenging and difficult to talk openly about science. And for many scientists, then in their work situations, they find it difficult to talk openly about their faith commitments. And so, again, we're kind of in that no man's land between those those two ideological camps. And so, yeah. but there really are a lot of people out there like oh, us absolutely. that are interested in both of them. Um, so it's it's very very nice to to have a community of people that are involved in both. Well, and thankfully my yeah. my church community I'm an Episcopalian, um, and and within my Episcopal church community, uh, immediate community at least it uh, is very much welcomed. You know, I've taught several classes for my church um, with my former rector, and my uh, current rector is a huge fan of our podcast, and he actually was mm-hmm. a, a high school biology teacher before he went to seminary. Um, so it's an area that I get to talk about a lot, but, you know, academically, you know, I, I get to do work on it and write about it, but, it, you know, I, I do, I'm trying to get to know people in our religious studies program, for example, but also too to get to know people at different institutions around the country at seminaries and things like that as a way just to kind of collaborate more, um, yep. or science and religion centers as a way to collaborate more. Uh, cause it's something that I find very fascinating, obviously, since we do this. Mm. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So you've you've done a lot of work on uh, with with Biologos in in the uh, uh, in in building resources, right? Mm-hmm. With answering frequently asked questions for for faith leaders for Christians um, across the board. But what is it that 
within this this sphere, this this uh, this world of science and religion, this relationship between the two that that just gets you jazzed, that 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 makes you excited, that you could talk about for an hour. Yeah, so I got into this work um, primarily because I'm teaching at this Christian college, and I started hearing more and more former students, after I'd been there long enough, former students, I'd start hearing that had left their faith because they got out of the bubble that we were part of and saw how science works in the real world. Maybe it was just watching the Discovery Channel, seeing nature, and and somewhere deep inside them, whether it was ever articulated this way explicitly or not, somewhere deep inside them from the religious communities they had grown up in were like, this doesn't fit. This doesn't work. This with my faith. Uh, this view of the world doesn't. You know, I can't. I can't reconcile this. And I'm feeling that I got to choose. Am I either going to double down and be part of this religious community, or am I going to say, yeah, this is the way the world works and what science has told us? And they would feel at this fork in the road of having to choose between these two. And so I got into this because I was tired of hearing that, of hearing people think that somehow they had to choose between science and and faith. And so I said, I got to sort some of this out myself. I got to, I mean, I've, as I told you before, I've, I was never really tempted by things like young earth creationism, but neither was I ever completely sure how to reconcile in my own mind things like what Genesis says with evolution. And so it was through some of my own uh, reading, through some of the work in this Templeton group that I was talking about in Oxford, where it was like, okay, now I'm starting to see the way that it's not like you have to compromise somehow on your faith. It's that I need a little better, more sophisticated under, understanding, a way of interpreting scripture that's actually better. It's not somehow, you know, shirking responsibility, but it's like, no, these these documents didn't fall from heaven. They're, they were written in a time and place. And so coming to understand that just like opened my eyes to say, okay, I'm free now. I feel like I'm free to explore the the scientific evidence and let that lead me where it will, because it's not going to threaten this commitment to faith that I have, to this understanding of the Bible, even as this inspired document that that has you know been so important to our to our tradition. So that, in my own journey, led to, I think I can show this to other people here now too. I think, I think we can help people come so that they don't get to a a crisis point the way so many of my former students had. And so that part of understanding in one bigger, more coherent picture has been really important for me. And I think, uh, is, is one of those things that keeps me juiced up in in talking to, to other people about this, that, that you can take both of these seriously, right? Mm-hmm. So that it's not, not giving up on one or the other. Mm-hmm. More recently, um, so Biologos here, uh, about three years ago, made an intentional decision to expand the topics we talk about. Uh, Earlier on, it was mostly evolution and origins-related work. 
And that was an intentional decision also to try to unbundle it from the other issues. Because as we talked about on these culture wars, that too often the culture wars come as prepackaged um, you know, bundles of, of issues and topics and that you have to take all of one or all of the other. And Biologa said, no, we're not trying to get you to, we're not, try, we're not talking about climate change. We're not talking about homosexuality. We're not trying to get you to vote Democratic. We're just trying to talk about evolution. Uh, as a way of unbundling that. But after doing that for about 10 years, uh, we said we think we've earned enough credibility and trust that maybe we do need to talk about some other scientific topics. That was uh, at a strategic planning meeting in 2019, and we thought that 2020 was going to be the year of climate change and creation care for Biologos. And then COVID happened, (laughs) and we pivoted really hard in 2020 then to trying to provide scientific resources from a Christian perspective that people might trust related to COVID and really ramped up very quickly in in that regard. And so then Uh by about 2021... Uh, by the middle of 2021 or so, we we started uh, thinking more seriously and developing more resources on climate change. And that's become an issue now for me that uh, keeps me animated and sometimes keeps me up at night and seeing that just the psychology of the way this is an issue works, um, that it's just far enough away that it doesn't feel like a crisis right now. But it really is a crisis right now. I mean, the right. things where we have this short window right now as a civilization to make the right kinds of choices and to show how this ought to flow out of our faith, you know, rather than, again, it being bundled on the opposite side of the culture wars from where many people of faith are. And they think that's what those liberal people are worried about. I'm not worried about that. Well, to show that this ought to flow out of our faith that we ought to be caring for creation and that we ought to be worried about the justice of we in the in in the western world the industrialized world who have caused almost all of this are going to suffer the least from it it's going to be the people who didn't cause it that are going to suffer the most and what does our what does our faith commitment have to say about that right shouldn't shouldn't we of all people be most concerned about uh, what the poorest and the least of these around the world are going to suffer as a result of what we've done over the last few generations. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reading that the, uh, you know, the Solomon Islands are probably going to be the first nation mm-hmm. that is completely eradicated by sea level rise. And uh, they're trying to purchase large swaths of land in Asia. In to relocate a country. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, to f- create a new country <laughs> as theirs is disappearing. Uh, and we here are uh, are saying, well, you know, maybe it's a hundred years out. No. Um, I think we're all pretty pretty aware. If you're listening to this podcast, you are probably fairly aware of the awful parts of uh, of climate change and the things that we mm-hmm. should be doing. And there's perhaps um, a sort of paralyzing nihilism to it for those of us who think about this a lot is there anything happening in this in this realm that brings you hope right now right at the end of 2021 we did a a series on hope and i've been thinking about it a lot lately in the in the sense of is it possible for me to be hopeful and yet not terribly optimistic Because when I read the data, when I read the new IPCC report, I'm not very optimistic. And is that something different than hope? And I'm 
persuaded that I can be hopeful as an intentional choice of commitment, as a way of saying, this is how I'm going to look at the world. I'm committed to seeing it as God's creation, as a place where God is sovereign, not in the sense that God controls every detail that happens, but in the sense that the, the good guys win in the end. I'm committed to that view of life that, that uh, God will work all things together for good. I'm not very optimistic about the, uh, the way things are going, but that ultimately um, I'm not... I'm not even called to be effective. We had a podcast guest use this line that I just think is super powerful, that we are not called to be effective. We're called to be faithful. And what does it look like to be a faithful Christian in these days when um, it doesn't look like we're being very effective at convincing people to do the right thing? What does it mean to be faithful in that? in that kind of circumstance. And I think it's to continue to say that God's on the throne. Jesus is the Lord within our tradition. These are the phrases we use that order our, order our lives and that we're going to continue to love our neighbor and love our enemies and to honor God with our hearts and souls and minds and strength. And Hope then becomes the kind of outflow of looking at the world in that way and of being committed to that, to that way of looking at the world. That hopefulness can be an effect, an outcome from the commitment to being faithful. Um, and again, I think it's possible to have that attitude while at the same time, the sort of emotional response to immediate circumstances is not always very good. Um, but that optimism or pessimism I see is that emotional reaction to what I see right now, whereas mm. hope is the commitment to what I believe the way things are going to be ultimately. Much longer perspective, eternal perspective that hope derives from as opposed to optimism or pessimism. I think you've just described Isaiah's call from <laughs> Isaiah chapter six, where God says, uh, you know, whom shall I send to bring a message to the people? And Isaiah says, ooh, 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 pick me. And God says, here's your message. Um, tell them to repent, but they're not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> you know, know from the outset that this is going to fail, but I need you to do it anyway. <laughs> I like that that uh, call to faithfulness, not effectiveness, because there's a uh, we uh, we just had a, a section in uh, I teach confirmation in my in my church, and we've got eight teenagers, and uh, we were talking about uh, Christology and talking about Jesus, and we got to the section on Christ's return, and they have a lot of questions about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. Um, is it going to be like? When he came the first time, is he going to be a baby? Is he already here? Is it going to be dramatic in the sky? Uh, and the big question was when. And most of them uh, kind of agreed amongst themselves, without my prodding, that it was probably just going to be when the climate gets too warm 
for humans to live anymore. Mm. And that we are going to, once we destroy the world, that's when Jesus will come in. And so they were just talking amongst themselves about how bad it has to be first before Jesus will come and set things right. And like the fact that this is the sort of casual conversation happening among 13 year olds, Mm -hmm. it it was like a, a, a shot to the heart to me. Because, you know, this is something that's deeply important to me as well. But when I was 13, I was certainly not thinking right. in, in these terms, right? When I was 13, my uh, the limit of my understanding of the environment was that, you know, those uh, six-pack from soda rings were going to kill turtles. Um, you know, Captain Planet was the, <laughs> the extent of my understanding of what we were doing to the world. But for them, they, they see this as a present reality. And I think the rest of us need to wake up to that. Mm-hmm. This is part of what has uh, urged us at Biologos to make this to make this one of the core topics that we deal with. The origins issues are interesting. They're important at some level and have implications for things like how you understand scripture and so on. But whether there was a historical Adam or Eve is not going to affect too many people's lives and livelihoods and cause countries like the Solomon Islands to have to relocate, right? (laughs) I mean, there's a different sort of immediacy and importance (laughs) to the topics of climate change that we've got to get this one right, or it's not just going to result in splitting of denominations. It's going to result in inability to uh, have a sustainable planet anymore. Well, and you think about, too, you know, there are still indigenous cultures out there that are completely cut off from uh, the industrialized world, right? Or the technological world, I guess you could say. Um, you know, where they still live the way they've always lived. And we know they're there, but don't have any communication with them. That those cultures and those communities, especially ones that are on islands, will be wiped off the face of the earth um, because of our actions. And, that, and even the ones that aren't on islands, the ecosystems correct. are going to change so dramatically. Already in Africa and South America, the kinds of crops that you can grow and when you can grow them are changing pretty rapidly. And those kind of indigenous cultures that have always done things the same way are not going mm-hmm. to be able to to keep doing those. Yeah, and it, but it's very tragic that, you know, the Western world has to be uh has to know that it's impact at least the general thought seems to be that some believe that well it's not in my backyard i guess is the best way of saying it yeah and that again is part of the that's part of the psychology that makes this so difficult to communicate because it's not immediate and in your face it's off down the road or in another part of the world or something like that but sure and that's the loving others yep right And so, you know, obviously, if you identify as Christian, you can use Christian scripture to help you with that. But even if you don't identify as Christian or uh, even if you don't identify as a person of any faith whatsoever, you can still recognize the importance of loving others, of caring about other people. So so to me, this is another aspect, whatever your motivation is to help you care for others. This is another aspect of communicating to, to, uh, to people that about these issues that again, span or try to at least span the, the culture war issues that 
the theoretical side of this. So we do this a lot in practice and have lots of stories to tell about trying to communicate to people in that regard. But there's a really fascinating theoretical aspect behind it. I don't know if you guys know the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt and his yep. book, The Righteous Mind from a few years ago, and these moral foundations that people intuitively use to uh, make their decisions. And the the research that he's done on the political left and the political right primarily and which of those moral foundations are most important to them and you you see pretty clearly that people who identify as liberal or progressive rank the highest on these moral foundations of care and fairness. And many of us that are on that at least lean that way think that we can make these arguments just by appealing to, shouldn't we care about these other people? Isn't this fair in order that the people who have you know, not caused this problem, they shouldn't have to be the ones suffering from it. And the way you and I both just talked about this issue, that's what we were appealing to. Mm -hmm. Whereas most people on the political right end of the spectrum rank way higher in these moral intuitions on liberty and authority. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges we face is how do we appeal to those kind of moral foundations to talk about these issues because for them, they hear, well, this isn't fair. Well, but their response is, well, you can't take away my liberty. You can't take away my choice. Right. Life isn't fair. (laughs) Yeah. Life isn't fair. Sorry. But, or appeal to some other authority that they accept. So I think that's one of the big challenges for us in this business of how do we talk about these issues that are so important in ways that tap into the moral intuitions of people who are different than we are, people who who uh, don't value as highly some of those other things that we value. Which obviously the last two years with this pandemic have made that, ev- that contrast even more. Even clear. more. Even I'd more. <laughs> You're right. So we need a good alien invasion, <laughs> some, some common enemy. So I'll tell enemy. you though, at the beginning of this pandemic, we at BioLogo said, this is going to be what rallies the church to take science oh. more seriously. We thought oh, this I is wish. really the opportunity. And within a few months it was, nope, the opposite of that has happened. Yeah. So yeah. it's very tragic. saw to those witness. Yeah, so. you definitely saw those ideologies take over and they, they made certain issues political that I never imagined a million years could be political. And then I, I learned so much during mm-hmm. that time about what it means to communicate with people and understand other people's values and um, try to communicate through them, to find, find some common language, not even common values, but a common way of communicating truth. That I'm still working on very much. So there's another book, if I can point you to, uh, that's been Please. very helpful for me in this regard, too, by a legal scholar by the name of John Inazu. The book's called Confident Pluralism, which I think is really, really important. I actually just did a podcast interview with him about two months ago on our feed. You can find it. But Confident Pluralism is he's coining this phrase to try to talk about how do we hold to our own convictions in a society where we can't and probably shouldn't just impose them on other people. So the confident side is this isn't relativism where we just say anything goes. I really believe this is the truth, and I think it's really important. But the pluralism side is 
I recognize that my neighbor down the road believes something different with the equal amount of fervor that I believe. So how do we, in that kind of society, have meaningful conversations? How do we try to break through these culture war uh, bundles that, that are there? And the, he talks primarily in terms of Supreme Court cases in the book, because that's what he is. He's a scholar of the Supreme, Supreme Court, but really pushes us towards thinking within our communities. How do we move towards tolerance, where, again, it's not just in some wimpy sort of anything goes, but rather to be tolerant that I know other people don't all believe the same the way I do, and I shouldn't just exile them. And tolerance kind of plays off of certainty in a, in a certain sense, where maybe right. toning down my certainty helps to communicate with people a little bit more. But he tries to push towards tolerance and humility and patience that uh, I think those are all really, really helpful ways of trying to engage people who believe differently than you do. Yeah. I appreciate well, that recommendation. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll make sure to put those those links in the show notes as well as links to your books that folks can, can purchase and read. Um, and all of the resources that you've mentioned from BioLogos as well. Um, here at the end of our time together, first of all, I want to say a huge thank you Absolutely. on behalf of the rest of our hosts and all of our listeners for spending this time with us. Um, and uh, before you go, uh, what's coming up on the uh, on your podcast that we can look forward to? Yeah, so this uh, at the conference that we have coming up, um, we're going to do a live a live uh, recording, which always sounds funny because it's not like. Any recording isn't live, but we're going to have a studio audience. That's what I should say. We're going to have a studio audience in front of us to uh, record a conversation that I'll have with the artist, Makoto Fujimura, um, to talk about creation. What does it mean to be creative and to be made in the image of God? And what are the consonances that we find between uh, science and art in some of those, in some of those ways? Um, we're going to do a, a whole series on climate change coming up in the not too dis not too distant future. Uh, we did a we did a series uh, last summer on what it means to be human that was a little different from the typical episode where I sit down and talk to somebody for an hour like we're doing here. But it's a little more highly produced where we go out and talk to to uh, experts in a number of different fields and then have a narrative where we weave in weave in quotes from. From them throughout that. Um, we are going to do a, a conversation with N.T. Wright about the resurrection mm. for the week right before Easter that'll be coming up that I look forward to that. Uh, we just recorded last week an episode with Bill McKibben, who's uh, okay. one of the leading yeah. sci uh, climate change activists that was a pretty fun conversation. Um, then otherwise, we are uh, looking toward the, the summer and putting together a couple of other series. Uh, one of them is related to a new project that I have going on that is uh, what I'm calling the spiritual journey of Homo sapiens. How did we become Ooh. the kind of creatures that we are? And can we see in the journey of our species, something analogous to a spiritual journey of us as an individual, the highs and lows that we go through that help that to shape us and form us into, into what we are today. So oh, will you be looking at, uh, at like a paleolithic 
spirituality. Yeah. How did this uh, get started? I may, I have a, a trip to Europe, hopefully, uh, this next fall, where I'm even going to to look at some of the cave paintings as some of these oh, yes. earliest sort of, sorts of intimations of a of at least the records we have of our ancestors looking at something yes. else, feel you know, in a symbolic way of trying to figure yeah. out why we're here and who we are and all that. So. I'm our series on human evolution was one of it was my favorite series that that mm-hmm. is where my my brain is these days and what gets me excited. So that's wonderful to hear that you're doing that as that well. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Let me know if you need someone to go with you to hold your <laughs> you know, carry your suitcases or something. <laughs> that just sounds fascinating. <laughs> we'll see uh, if it happens. Yeah. That's the plan yeah, right that, now. <laughs> good luck with that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And as that moves forward, if that does happen, we'll have to have you back on to talk more about that because that that really does sound interesting. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Well, once again, uh, you can listen to that and 109 other episodes of the Language of God (laughs) podcast. You can find that on BioLogos or wherever it is that you find your podcast. Wherever you're listening right now, you can also find the Language of God podcast. So thank you so much, Jim, for being here today and for spending this time with us. It was a really wonderful hour with you. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ian. Happy to do it. Thank you.